You're listening to the Games Industry Doppers podcast. I'm James Batchelor and I'm joined this week by... Mahandrahan. Hayden Taylor. Marie D'Alessandri. We're going to be discussing some of the biggest topics of the week. Um, it's been an oddly quiet week, but also busy week. It's obviously Thanksgiving week over uh, on the other side of the pond. Um, so in terms of like big groundbreaking news stories, there hadn't been much. But there have been some some trends, some threads that have spread across some of the topics and some of the articles we've run. First subject I want to discuss was diversity, industry diversity. Now, we've discussed this before in various different fashions. But Hayden, you ran a particularly interesting piece about recruiting diversely and then dealing with unconscious uh, bias and even kind of the impact of transphobia. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I think, um, so I spoke to, uh, sorry, I don't know if I'm, it's probably going to mess up pronouncing her name. I spoke to uh, Cinzia Muzio and Leon Killen. Cinzia uh, is from Splash Damage and Leon runs a uh, diversity consultancy firm. And yeah, it was, it was mainly sort of exploring unconscious bias and how, as humans, basically our brains just really aren't very good. Um, and they tend to take a lot of shortcuts, which is ultimately what leads to a lot of like sort of preconceptions. You know, we, we put things into categories and then uh, sort of stereotyping through media or through other cultural forms basically reinforces those categories. And so we tend to leap to like snap judgments very, very quickly, even if consciously we know that we shouldn't like it's it's almost like an automatic program so the article was kind of exploring the different ways in which unconscious bias can feed into um, hiring and a huge part of that is you know when you're when you're hiring staff often i think there's this sense to be like well this person feels right and the the the, one of the sort of presiding things that came out of the article is like that feeling is something you have to examine because that person might feel right because they might just be like a like a straight white man just like you and so you feel like this immediate you know sort of a kinship um but really you actually need to examine what it is about that candidate that feels right and if you can't justify that instinct then it is almost certainly coming from a place of unconscious bias and that's i think why it's so difficult for people from sort of marginalized groups to sometimes break into industries that are very, very heavily dominated by, say, one sort of uh, segment of society. Yeah, I mean, it's that idea of, you know, it's a, it's an industry of white men who end up hiring more white men who end up hiring more white men. And that was one of the things that struck me when I read through the piece was, um, you know, we, we cover things like issues like diversity quite quite regularly on the site i mean as a as a business as an industry focused site as we, we really have to represent the concerns the industry has and one of the things that the article acknowledges that the interviewees acknowledge is actually there is quite a lot of like good intention in the games industry um and we've reported on that good intention but what the article really made me think is actually does the industry really understand the true nature of the problem because we've we've written a lot about diversity it generally sort of begins and ends um with with uh, gender diversity like we're, and, and that kind of polarised view of gender, female-male, which obviously isn't the full story either, but certainly doesn't necessarily uh, extend to welcoming in trans people or, or, or various other kinds of diversity, cultural diversity, um, other, other ethnicities, things like that. And this article did make me kind of question, you know, how, whether or not the, the sort of the, 
I feel like the industry has a very well-meaning sort of almost like a checklist approach to it. Like if we if we go to schools, we'll be able to get more girl, more more fem- female uh, applicants in. But this is kind of much more insidious is the wrong word, but it's definitely much more subtle and nuanced kind of um, kind of bias that I'm, I'm I'm wondering. And and maybe Marie has something that you can add here because I know that you've been chatting to people at least preliminarily uh, in a preliminary sense for for work you're doing for us at the moment about unconscious bias. And uh, I, um, what, I, what I left the article wondering was how much of a grip does the industry and the people who are hiring the industry have on this idea of, of how subtle and nuanced your biases can be? Absolutely. I thought there was a approach in your, in your feature, Hayden, that was super interesting. And it was it's an industry of generally well-meaning people who don't know what to do. And I think that's that's the core of the issue is we all want to do better. I mean, at least most of us. But what what we do and where we start is the thing that most people have difficulties with. Um, and it, it doesn't stop at just, oh, I'm going to run an unconscious bias training in my, in my company because that needs to then translate into your company culture. And that's the step that, that's missing uh, most of the time. You have to, to check yourself constantly and reflect on your actions and attitudes and so we can all, all do better here. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I think it's very important, important, sorry, to have um, practical initiatives. Um, so I went to that um, workshop run by Gene to Gaming a few weeks back, where we discussed in in small groups actual practical steps related to various issues in the industry, from unconscious bias to remote working or parental leave or. Uh, sexual harassment and all these these topics uh, that we need to deal with. And once we've all thought about it in small groups, we then shared the results of our thinking with everyone else. And like, I think this type of workshop should pretty much be common practice within game companies because just take the time to really reflect on those topics. Like I, I, I think I, I try to keep myself informed with those topics and really think about them on a daily basis. Even I was surprised about just sitting down, taking the time to think about this and to talk about this to other people, how much it actually helps to find practical um, solutions to them. Um, Yeah, it also reminds me of a talk that was at Develop Brighton last year, this year, sorry, uh, from Lucy Kiyakido, sorry if I pronounced that wrong, about um, body diversity in character design, where she realized as a character artist that she was always drawing the same type of body. So she took a step back, she reviewed her own work, challenged herself to draw different type of bodies, different body types. Um, So yeah, I guess what I'm saying is you need to hold yourself accountable for the impact that games have on people's life and be better at representing things in games, outside of games, and hiring people that are diverse so that there's a virtuous circle. I don't know if that all makes sense by the end, but I guess you see the idea. (laughs) It does make sense, and it it speaks to another idea that was in Hayden's piece, which was really at the, the core of... There's a resist. There, there may be resistance to facing unconscious bias because th- there's a there's a fear inherent in admitting that you're wrong, and this mm. is a really odd way to be wrong because you're you're sort of wrong without being wrong. You're, even people that are doing their best, even people who are 
doing more right than they used to do. You know, they're, they're doing more for diversity. You can still be doing it in the wrong way. You can still be leaving some aspects of the process un, uh, without without being analysed or without reflecting upon those aspects to kind of eradicate all of the the ways in which they were going wrong before. Like you can you can be doing better, but you can still not be doing quite enough. And that is that's a difficult thing for people to face up to. That you can have the absolute best intentions at heart. You can be you can be going in roughly the right direction, but you can still be excluding people you can still be making decisions against the thing the very thing you, you think you're driving towards um and again it was uh, it was another thing that we kind of hammers home this idea that you know companies really need to be on top of this stuff because i i, I don't think it's enough to just to just be kind of monitoring like how many females versus males you're hiring like, there's there's a lot more to it there's a lot more detail there it's also really important to just accept that actually it is okay to get it wrong um, and it's like you said, Matt, it's not a point of blame. Um, and if you do get it wrong and you are challenged, like there's no need if it's done in a way that is sort of compassionate and considerate and the other person wants to do right, like being challenged, saying like, oh, you, you misgendered me or something like that. That's OK, as long as I think you try to readdress that in the future and like overcoming unconscious bias is not something you can just flick a switch like it is heavily embedded programming that you have to work at continuously and have a level of self-awareness and a level of consideration and try and put systems into your workplace to ensure that everyone gets an opportunity to speak in meetings, for example, because more introverted people might struggle. Um, people who are perhaps just if they've been marginalized in the past perhaps struggle to speak out in meetings and having like facilitators there who ensure that everyone gets like the appropriate time to actually air their concerns or float their ideas and make sure that they're not kind of shut down and it's okay to challenge um, like upper management it's okay to challenge other people's ideas i just wanted to add um because you were saying maybe, I mean, you, what you said made me think about how I think some companies maybe do not realize the extent of the issue of um, of the fact there's the real, real lack of diversity or maybe see it but don't really care. Um, uh, so I just wanted to say that the UK census is going to be, I think, a very, very good, uh, valuable initiative and tool so people can truly understand the problem. And uh, by knowing what our workforce looks like, and more importantly, seeing what it doesn't look like and see, look, we're lacking women, we're lacking diverse ethnic backgrounds, we're lacking all sorts of parts of lives uh, that could be so valuable uh, to be a better industry and to do better games. Yeah. But it, it, um, it also kind of links into another piece that was published this week by Rebecca Valentine, who's not here, she's off eating turkey and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but it's a new studio called Brass Lion, which is uh, founded by Manvir Hare, who used to work for Bioware and Raven Software. Uh, I'm going to butcher this name. Uh, Brian Davy smith and Rashad Redditch. Um, now, all three are from underrepresented backgrounds uh, within the games industry. And the impetus for doing, for, for starting the studio, um, it's in the, the feature, and I would advise everybody to go and read it, because it is very revealing about people who are from diverse bike backgrounds working in an industry that is not that great or hasn't historically been that great on diversity. Certainly throughout their careers, it hasn't been that great. And what 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 they feel like and the, the lengths that they feel they have to go to. I mean, these people are all people who've tried to make change inside larger companies 
and they've just found that you know there's either a, a general inertia that comes with being in a large organization or just a lack of desire to truly make a difference to truly encourage diversity and so they would have to go out and do it themselves um and this this company has been founded with that in mind and they want it in their workforce and they want it in their products um and one thing that um the, the point they touched upon which i thought was also quite revealing um uh, i think uh rashad redditch was saying that when he so basically his background he grew up in Oakland, california a really rough time for the city the murder rate was really high he didn't even have a computer you know um and i think we do forget that the games industry is is lacks diversity in many many ways, but it's also and I've seen this conversation on Twitter many many times um, a career that's more open to people with the resources to give themselves the equipment to even just get started. Um, and so, what one of the one of the points they were saying is how many companies are going out into communities and and kind of trying to test people for the skill for the core skills that come that, that go into making games, but among people that don't even necessarily have the, the, the equipment at home in the first place to, to do it themselves. And he said that the, the way he got into the industry was just having a mentor who spotted his potential and, and helped him to refine it and to give him direction, give him focus. And without it, there was no path into the industry for someone like that. And that's, that's an economic issue. That's not culture. It's not creed. It's not gender. It's not sexual preferences. It's, it's not, none of that. It's just purely how much money he had so it was another kind of interesting way of thinking about this and, and maybe another area where where, the, where as an industry we don't necessarily get quite the uh, the, the nuance that we need to, to to address this stuff yeah i think i think the issue of class is definitely one that isn't it se- seems largely forgotten about in the games industry like one one thing that i do uh, a lot is I, I go to a lot of these you know european b2b conferences and things like that i speak to a lot of people in the games industry like on show floors and see and i get a good sense of like what the hot button issues are as far as like developer communities are concerned based on what sort of um, developer talks are being given stuff like that and you do see stuff on diversity but you never see uh, class considerations or socioeconomic background ever really come into play. It's almost like that is a real blind spot. And that almost certainly comes from like a place of unconscious bias, because like you said, Matt, in, unless you have a certain level of privilege, getting into the games industry can be incredibly difficult. And so I think as a result, we do have this blind spot where a lot a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people come from quite sort of middle class middle-class backgrounds and are quite blind to the challenges of actually trying to become a game developer if you didn't grow up in such a sort of like privileged background yeah like in a background where where a university education is basically assumed you know like yeah the industry going to universities automatically cuts out a huge part of the population and the people that, mm. that may show real promise in the core core disciplines that go into say programming or or, or art or whatever but just can't for you know, for, for economic and social reasons, access higher education, you know, it's definitely a blind spot. All of this as well speaks to a point that um, Rami Ishmael has been making over the last few years with his hashtag One Reason to Be panels at GDC. Um, I think it was last year's panel. He, he did a, I think you were, a, you attended Matt, like he did a, a map of the world. Um, show you know showcasing and then yeah saying like where do you think you know people make games and in truth people can make games absolutely anywhere in the world there are always incredible stories of of people in these really kind of far off random places where you wouldn't where they wouldn't have the economics to to learn how to you know make games and the resources to to connect with the rest of the industry and then he mapped up the the 
the places that people had come from who were attending GDC, and they were very, very specific areas. Now, he's trying to expand that with that GameDev.World concept, the digital conference he ran earlier this year. But it does, yeah, like it, it kind of speaks to the point that not only have we got a lack of diversity in terms of the people we're hiring and where we're hiring them from, but there is that just disconnect between where the talent can potentially be and people are cut off, as you guys have been saying. Mm. I think one of the, the, I mean, to, to, to throw in an upside to, you know, obviously, it's, it, you know, we can point out the problems, but one of the points that was made in Hayden's feature um, was that actually, you know, we, we, the games industry is notable because it actually does try and it does seem to very sincerely care about making a difference here. I forget which of the interviewees it was, Hayden, but there seemed to be that sentiment, right? That they've worked, they've, they've seen other industries, they've talked to people from other industries, and it feels like a chore elsewhere. But here in the games industry, there doesn't seem to be a very legitimate desire to make things better. It's just about whether or not that approach is being examined in the right way. Yeah, it was uh, Leon, who's uh, from originally from like an academic background and did a lot of diversity and inclusion work for sort of uh, education institutions and things like that. And yeah, the point that he made is like these are old dinosaur institutions that will tick the box of diversity because they're perhaps legally required to, but there is no real sense of drive or consideration. Whereas in the games industry, like there are a lot of really well-meaning people and they're afraid of getting it wrong. They're afraid of fucking it up. But there is an overriding sense that it is a good thing. And I think a huge part of that is because, you know, the games industry, it's a creative industry. Ultimately, it's about kind of telling stories and creating like unique experiences. And when you only have very limited number of perspectives, that's that's a market that's going to very, very quickly stagnate. And as you see the like demographics of people who play games these days that it's not just young boys anymore like everyone plays games and so we need like a diverse group of people creating stories and experiences that come from life experiences that your average game developer will be completely like unexposed to yeah and then that's one of the that's one of the the things that brass lines really put forward was there is a creative and a cultural need for diversity in the games industry, but there's actually also a very real market imperative to do it. And what they proposed was that we've been kind of sitting on the same handful of IPs that have dominated like the high end of the industry for two or three console generations now. And like, are the next, are the next run of, of these major IPs going to come with a slightly different voice, with a more inclusive voice? Pointing to big hits like Black Panther and so on, which we genuinely seem to try tried to give voice to, to to people who very often aren't represented in movies. Huge hit, you know. That there is there's a business aspect to this too, which you can feel sometimes quite cynical or uh, you know just it feels inappropriate to talk about. But 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 that it's it's an extension of just the frustration some people must feel not not seeing themselves in the products that they buy. Hmm. That's certainly something that I, I, I want to see improve over the years, and I'm, I'm intrigued about uh, Brass Lions game because, yeah, as we said, like, it's not just that the top franchises are the same ones that we've been playing for two generations now. It's also that all the others that are 
all the other up and coming franchises or the, or the the double A franchises as it were they're trying to almost ape those apologies if I've used this example before but Sniper Ghost Warrior 3 I know it's not the best game in the world but I, it's one I know, but it's, it's one I enjoyed it's one that appealed to me like, really, that, that game really captures the, the full spectrum of people in, in society <laughs> no no okay no but what, what I mean was like the, the, the point the point the, the point of my example here is that um you know, Sniper Ghost Warrior 3, open world, oppressed Georgia, blah, blah, blah. But the, the character you play is yet another one-man one army from the, US, you know, from the US. It's an American soldier. He's here to, to liberate the world. And it just made no sense to me. Why can't it be a Georgian trying to you know, liberate his own home country? Like, why does it have to be? And it's because they were aiming for that AAA scope. They were aiming for that AAA audience. And that AAA audience likes playing your Call of Duties, your Medal of Honours, your Tom Clancy's, which are all very America. Yeah. Um, I actually, interviewed, you know, when I interviewed them recently, I tried to ask, did you not consider having, a, and I couldn't quite get a straight answer out of them. Like, I'd just like to see franchises that are quite clearly drawing inspiration or trying to stand toe-to-toe with the big AAA blockbusters or even the AA blockbusters trying to do things a bit more differently and presenting a different... A, a more different character even the triple a sorry I'm, I'm going off on a tangent again now jedi fallen order the pathetic excuse that the reason it is a white one well, is just just a white man is a jedi is because oh, we don't want to distract from the fact that that you know the movies have got ray as the you know female female yeah. protagonist oh so, exactly it's just it's just an or there's just no excuse for it there's no excuse there is no there is no narrative reason I haven't played the game yet, but I, I, I think it's a safe assumption there is no narrative reason for that for that character to be specifically a white male, a cisgender white male. There's no reason, so why not try something different? Because it's already a woman, James. Women, that's way too much in one franchise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I will forward the idea that Star Wars may be the very, very last film captured by in this push towards diversity. <laughs> um, I, it is, it is a, a very much a white guy IP, and I'm not necessarily sure that that is the one. That will be the first uh, the first domino to fall. But I would suggest everybody check out what Blast Lion's up to, because their, their game... I mean, and we've heard this idea before right, many, many times, you know, that if, if you have a diverse uh, group of people making a game, that that diversity will show through the products. Uh, their, their game, Corner Walls, um, sounds absolutely fantastic. Like, it's, it's going to be an RPG, and, and they're a very skilled team in that respect. Mandy Hare was, was pretty high up in the creative team in Bioware, working on Mass Effect. And it's set in the 90s in, in, in New York City. Um, it's about an Afro-Latina uh, character. What they seem to be trying to do is to find ways to turn things like, uh, you know, um, the, the, the racist structures in society, the way that the, the people of people of that part of society are, are repressed and kept down, and turn that into gameplay. And it's having just finished playing the Outer Worlds, which I generally really liked, you know, but it's. It's like 10% deviated from the same stuff we've always seen. Right? Like, so instead of kind of like a brown post-apocalyptic wasteland, it's a slightly more colorful post-apocalyptic wasteland. And, and that, that's really not what, what the promise of this kind of double A sort of development is. Like, what I really am excited to see what far more abstract concepts and really it shouldn't feel that abstract, but it does, you know, like the social structures being turned into gameplay, not just what, you know, attachments you can fit onto your gun. And um, this, this does feel like the kind of the, this feels like a proper expression of that idea of 
the diverse team will create a, will create more diverse experiences. And, you know, you've just got to hope that there's a, that there's an audience for this kind of stuff. And you've got to hope that, that the, the fear that's evident in the way that, say, you know, Respawn tackled their, their protagonist with isn't, isn't going to be matched by a general reluctance in the gaming community to embrace this kind of stuff. I really hope that audience is there and I really, I'm really intrigued to see how as you say, like the, the mention of converting those social systems and those social issues into gameplay systems because I remember with um, Dragon Age Origins I can't remember if um, if Manvir was, was involved in that one but like narratively, yeah, if you were of a certain race, characters interacted with you differently but that only affected the dialogue it didn't affect any of your options it didn't affect any of your any of the gameplay as far as I can remember it literally just came down to one or two dialogue variations so to see something go a bit deeper um, would be amazing the other one I'm intrigued about is um, Don't Nods Tell Me Why which was announced at XO19 a couple of years ago with the whole the storyline it's around you know identical twins but one of the twins is a transgender male and it's the trailer seems to hint that the story is about him and the journey that he's been on and just I I know that Don't Nod's games while high profile appeal to a somewhat niche audience or, or certainly not quite as mainstream but I'd love to see that one kind of take off with the backing of Xbox we'll see what happens before we move on um yeah, just very quickly looping back to Unconscious Bias, there's a book that I really want to recommend to anyone who is interested in this sort of stuff, and it's called uh, Inc- Incognito, Secret Lives of the Brain by David Eagleman. And it just goes very deeply into, yeah, basically that, that part of your brain that runs on autopilot, and it explores why it does the things the way that it does and the relationship it has with your conscious mind. And it gives a really interesting perspective on just the unconscious mind and how many facets of your life it kind of secretly controls. So anyone who's actually interested in kind of examining their own unconscious bias or trying to get a handle on how it all works, um, it's a very accessible book despite being about quite a, quite a lot of fairly esoteric concepts. So yeah, I highly recommend that. If I can add something too quickly on topics too. Um, Matt touched upon it, but uh, mentoring, I think, is is invaluable. And I think I think companies should really um, see if they can set up a mentoring in, in their like in the in the company uh, in order to find talent outside of where the games industry usually finds talent. Uh, there's lots of independent initiatives out there. Anesis and UCs uh, launched one last year. Limit Break, not last year, this year. Um, which is great. Uh, some companies have them already. I know King, for instance, has a very cool uh, mentoring um, initiative. They go to colleges and stuff like that. Um, so oh, yeah, I just wish every games company could just look into mentoring because that's extremely valuable. Much to Hayden's delight, we're now going to talk about virtual reality. Uh. <laughs> um, it was it was fascinating hearing your thoughts on it. I, I completely understand why you feel this, and uh, and and I'm, I, I lament the the lack of tea fueled beer can head you know, helmets for you. But um, unfortunately, <laughs> that's not the issue that VR needs to uh, uh, address immediately. According to Phil Spencer at Xbox, the address, the issue that needs to be addressed is no one's asking for it. 
Spencer gave an interview at XO19 to Survivor in which he was uh, talking about how Xbox is still not quite interested in uh, VR just yet. He said, he personally, I have some issues with VR. It's isolating, and I think of games as a communal kind of together experience. We're responding to what our customers are asking for, and nobody is asking for VR. Thoughts? I mean, is the reason nobody's asking for it because it's not good and you can't drink tea whilst you well, play? Well, yes, yes. <laughs> let's get let's get that's the my, obvious that, that, that's my, way, Yes, <clears throat> that's my ironclad thesis, and I think Phil Spencer is absolutely right. Like, so he he said until until it moves past like demos and experiences, and okay, that was three years ago. Um, I still don't really feel like we've gotten past that point, really. Like we've had a few VR games that have looked good, and we've had a few games that were already good moved over to vr things like thumper and super hot appear to have done really well there but whenever i see vr games at conferences and shows and things like that they often just feel like demos they don't and they don't feel like they do anything with vr like they're always like bow and arrow games or gun games and like i don't know what the potential is for vr when it comes to gameplay mechanics but it has to be more than just kind of very loosely replicating sort of vaguely reminiscent actions of like firing a bow and arrow that's that's just not enough you know the promise of vr is something that is it's insane you know it's fully immersive and it's kind of beyond anything we currently have and just game developers are not delivering anything in vr that couldn't be done on another platform and that's kind of the problem with vr at the moment there's there's nothing that couldn't be on like Switch or PC or Xbox or you know the Wii, um, and I think that's that's kind of VR's great failing currently. Yeah, I just wanted to say that I'm waiting for that one killer app that will kickstart the whole thing. I think Beat Saber was pretty close, but I think you're actually right. I don't think that's anything that could be a platform, and I'm now wondering whether that killer app will ever happen. Uh, at the same time, there's one aspect of that Phil Spencer's quote I don't agree with is um, no one's asking for it, so why should we do it? If we limit ourselves to only doing things that people are expecting us to do, I think that's a bit of a shame. But overall, mostly agree with you, Hayden. Well, I mean, I, I think, yeah, so there, there's a few things there. Um, we'll put the killer app idea to one side for me because that will inevitably involve a return to Half-Life, and uh, we can do that at some point. But I actually think the reason why this quote um, struck so many people, I mean, in addition to just being Phil Spencer, and he's the head of Xbox, and he's a hugely influential dude and all that, is just the fact that it, what he had to say was pretty much the same as what he had to say three years ago, uh, which doesn't say brilliant things about the progress that VR has made across three years. Um, and that's kind of the thing. And... We covered it. I mean, many people covered it, but um, I, I wrote our story, and I recalled, I recalled there being an Xbox video in which VR was discussed. And as it turned out, it was the video for Project Scorpio, which turned out to be Xbox One X. And in that three-minute introductory video, which I think was shown at E3, so this is like I don't know, two, three, maybe two or three months before the first Survivor interview, where he said that VR's too much like a bunch of demos and, and, and all of that for us to be interested. This video was out. And in that video, there was a relatively brief, but it's still there, section in which Todd Howard from Bethesda talked excitedly about how amazing it is that Microsoft is making a console that could support Fallout 4 in VR um, in the same way that a high-power PC could. 
So that is um, that is proof that exists. It's on the internet. The Microsoft definitely were thinking back in 2016 about a future in which a console would support VR. And I, I, I'm not suggesting necessarily that they really thought that was going to happen with Xbox One X. But I actually think that if, if VR had taken off in any real way, we might have seen kind of, uh, you know, we might have seen, given how open Microsoft is at working with other platforms, that we might have seen maybe support for Oculus Rift if there was a business case to do so. Um, but I, I would have thought that in 2016, maybe they were thinking that by, by the time Project Scarlet rolls around, perhaps it would be there. Cause, because why put it front and center in a new console, um, new console announcement? So the fact that three years on from that, Phil Spencer is still basically saying the exact same thing that he was saying three years ago. I mean, what, what really has changed in that field? And since then, Phil Spencer has caught a little bit of flack on Twitter and he's kind of walked back some of his comments. He, he said that there's a lot of great work on VR, but it's just not what we're thinking about in Scarlet. So he's still basically sort of dismissing it as something that Microsoft needs to think about. Um, and to your point, Marie, about if we kind of limit ourselves to only what people are asking for, I mean, I would suggest that maybe, you know, Microsoft doing that is kind of different to everyone in the industry doing that, right? Microsoft is a huge company. It's making mm-hmm. a mass market product. Doesn't, that's not necessarily where you would look for true innovation in this sense. But actually, Shuei Yoshida <laughs> sort of uh, sent a fairly, fairly sweet tweet, I thought, because it wasn't in direct response to anything Phil Spencer tweeted, but it was just sort of like in brackets. It was like, well, sometimes we, you know, we work really hard on making things that people haven't said that they want, you know, kind of, well, we've spent loads on VR, so maybe there is something good about that. Um and so, yeah, but Sony has done it. But, you know, even there, I, I don't think Sony developed the VR set headset out of the goodness of their hearts. They developed a VR headset because they believed the market was going to take off. And I would be interested to know whether Sony still truly thinks that the market is about to take off or not. Um, because I have my doubts about that. But, yeah, I think, I think the reason why Phil Spencer's comments struck people so much is because it's just he's saying the same thing three years later. And that's not a good look for what is supposed to be a burgeoning, expanding market sector. Well, there were also comments from CG Project Red this week on VR. Um, Half-Life Alex being announced and due out March. CD Projekt were asked if this is going to harm Cyberpunk 2077, obviously a hugely anticipated title. Um, the hype behind that game is ridiculous, and I guess a Half-Life game is the, the only thing that could perhaps top it. Um, and the, the VP of Business Development there, Michelle Nowakowski, he said that um, VR remains a niche of the market. It's very, very small. Now, that still is true, and that, again, speaks to what Matt was saying about how how little progress VR seems to have made in the last three years that, yeah, it's still a niche market. There's still a massively higher end, you know, barrier to entry in terms of price, in terms of setup. All right, last year, sorry, this year, sorry, we've had the Quest and we've had the Rift S. Um, no, not the Rift S, the Quest, the Index, the index and what was the HTC's yeah. one? There's the, the H- uh, Galaxy, the Galaxy or like, there's, 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 Vive has Cosmos also, or something. Cosmos might be some, Cosmos. Some weird like cosmological. There are scene, now multiple standalone VR headsets that do not require a two thousand dollar PC, but they are still limiting in their experience. So yeah, so CD Projekt Red is just like no CD Cyberpunk will not suffer because suddenly Half Life is back in VR. It's just. Not not saying that you know the, it's not a zero sum game as it were like you know one thing doesn't mean the death of another but the fact that a new Half Life doesn't isn't isn't you know isn't making any any kind of impact on certain publishers 
suggest that how how low a threat people believe VR to be? Yeah, well, it's a you know it's similar to Spencer, right? It's the, the comments. I mean, you know, and let's let's be fair here. You know, it's Thanksgiving. It's it's not the most exciting week for news, but but like they are, they're striking comments insofar as it's just very very dismissive of the market that has existed for about five years now. You know, and it's so so easy to brush off VR still. And then and obviously the the question from the investor came from a place of. You know, the investor wasn't saying that these two products go head to head. It's more like, will Half-Life draw attention away from Cyberpunk? And even to that, even with that qualification, which is just, you know, based on this idea that the time is the most precious commodity and maybe some people will choose Half-Life. I mean, you know, even that didn't kind of cause a ripple. And I actually had to clean up the transcript a little bit but because I wasn't quite sure if it was accurate, but the the wording for, for how he describes the VR market is it's an extremely niche niche, which I thought was uh, pretty very well <laughs> the, dismissing the VR market as a whole. But he also said other things, like either he hasn't heard of a single kind of solid business coming come out of VR so far. Um, it's it's very, 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 and I could throw in a few more varies, very small. Um, stuff like that. It, it's, I don't know, it, it just struck me how... The degree to which VR can still be kind of treated as something that, that, that barely even makes a ripple in the wider world of games by people who are, you know, in charge of these huge companies. And, and CD Projekt said, unless he's missed something, unless he's overlooked some 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 uh, some company that is, that's doing a lot, that he that doesn't really know any in his conversations with other major publishers, nobody's even looking at investing in this stuff yet. Um, and that's that's years after we were thinking, you know, maybe in next year, maybe the year after, maybe that's when EA will step up. Maybe that's when you'll see more publishers coming in and putting their money down. And actually, I think what you're more likely going to see is people that have really supported VR so far. I mean, how how many more years is Bethesda going to be putting their games out in VR? Like that's the thing. I think Half Life Alex is. Rob Farhi, as he so often does, made a very good point. And you know, like Half Life Alex is is kind of the logical moment at which the the, the actual arms race in VR steps up. It's, it's the, the biggest single gesture by anybody to create what you could call a killer app. There hasn't really been one. You've had these, you know, you've had games that have become popular. Beat Saber, you know, it's come up a few times, but Beat Saber still only sold like a million units. You know, this is this this would this wouldn't really even make headlines if it wasn't in VR. Um, but that's still pretty long way from a killer app, I think. Um, but Half-Life Alex, maybe that changes it. And the CD Projekt Red guy said exactly the same thing. Maybe this is the stone that causes the ripple that leads to a VR explosion. But, you know, it ain't going to happen when CD Projekt, when uh, Cyberpunk comes out. It's not probably not going to happen next year either as a whole. That's all we've got time to discuss this week. We'll be back next week with more of the biggest topics and discussions of the games industry. In the meantime, you can go back and listen to previous episodes on all good podcasting platforms of your choice. You can like and subscribe to make sure you get the next episode. And you can get your daily dose of news, insight and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. 